Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Grand Budapest Hotel. This is a commissioned show by Taylor Long and Harrison Brockwell. And this is the first time we have delved into one of our favourite director's work, Wes Anderson. There are various reasons why we haven't touched on his work before. We went off him after Steve Zissou and it took this film, followed swiftly by watching Moonrise Kingdom on Blu-ray a year or so ago, for us to recapture how much we loved his worlds. We did like Fantastic Mr. Fox, though. But there was a definite point when he was just not making much in particular, and we definitely did not like the Darjeeling Limited to begin with. I appreciate it now. And at that point, where do you start? You know, where many, many years into our movie podcast, do we start with Bottle Rocket, his least accomplished and first film? Do we start with Rushmore, my second favourite? And more importantly... His films are so dense, so detailed, with such amazing visual flair and such an odd set of characters that an audio-only podcast is not the ideal home for discussion about his body of work. Ideally, you'd want a commentary. So, ultimately, if you want to cue this up with the Grand Budapest Hotel for examples of what we're talking about, it's not a direct commentary, but it will serve to accentuate what we're saying. So, nevertheless, with the commission of what is actually my favourite of his movies, this has given us the thrust we needed to take that dive into the Anderson Sea. Now, if you're not familiar, you need to remedy that stat. See this film, see the Royal Tenenbaums, see Moonrise Kingdom, see Rushmore. You can just see the Grand Budapest Hotel and then listen to our podcast on it afterwards because we can't spend two hours describing the events. What happens is nowhere near as important as how it happens. But whatever you do, whatever you do, don't not see the Grand Budapest Hotel. We shall commence talking about this film after a brief musical interlude. Do you plan to spend the whole podcast talking like Ray Fiennes? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> Run to the Cathedral of Santa Maria in Bruckneplatz, buy one of the plain half-length candles and take back four Klubecks in change. Light it in the sacristy, say a brief rosary, then go to Mendel's and get me a courtesan au chocolat. If there's any money left, give it to the crippled shoeshine boy. Hold it. Who are you? I'm Zero, sir. The new lobby boy. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustave H. I began to realize that many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. This is Madame D's last will and testament to Monsieur Gustave H. I bequeath a painting known as Boy with Apple. It's a masterpiece. The rest of this shit is worthless junk. This man is a ruthless adventurer and a con artist who preys on mentally feeble, sick old ladies. And he probably fucks them too. How's that supposed to make me feel? Did you just throw my cat out the window? 
You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant... Oh, fuck it. What's the meaning of this shit? Boy with apple, I thought you did. I now. Are you fucking kidding me? Wes Anderson himself is best judged by the worlds and characters he has provided us with. They all combine to make up the theatre in his head. He has a peculiar and distinctive look that, while emulated by Jared Hess, Zach Braff, and Taika Watiti, Jared Hess, director of... I know the name. Come get You're the food, Tina! Oh. You fat lord! Napoleon Dynamite, Napoleon Dynamite and okay. Nacho Libra. Yeah. Um, and Zach Braff, director of... Uh, the Garden State. Garden State. Sorry, just Garden State. Yeah. that They they have very Wes Anderson flavours to them. And Taika Waititi, he might not be inspired by Wes Anderson, but it really seems like he is, in the best way. Uh, the, the Wilder People definitely felt... Um, I'm thinking Eagle versus Shark here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll go with that. There's there's a healthy dose of Edgar Wright there as well, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. But Wes Anderson himself, his style, even though it has been emulated, if not imitated, is absolutely distinctive to him. He is an auteur, which means that if you take any single frame from any of his movies and show it to someone familiar with his work, they will recognise the film as one of his. In other words, if we were to see a frame from a picture that Wes Anderson is cooking up for 2019, we would go, well, that's the Wes Anderson film. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, he's a very, for want of a better phrase, auteur-y auteur as well. Um, in the, the auteur's sense that, auteur? The auteur's auteur. Um, in the sense that there's, there isn't really anybody else that emulates him so accurately that you might confuse them with somebody who is um, directly influenced by him. So, so for example, uh, I would say Tim Burton is an auteur. However, there are Barry Sonnenfeld has at times exactly d- directed yeah. films. You which could seem watch very other Burtonish. people's films and mm. think, is that Tim Burton? Could it be? Usually, it's because he's got his thumb in the producing credits. But I um, would say that element is there Tarantino as well. There are the other directors who make films which you're not going to get them mixed up with a Tarantino movie if you watch the film. But looking at the shot composition and um, and that kind of thing, you could potentially confuse them. Somebody else on Twitter mentioned Tarantino in the same breath as this. Uh, it was uh, expository conundrum was talking about uh, how how he is in fact the polar opposite of Tarantino uh, on the masterful dialogue chart, quick, snappy, characteristic. Um, but I commented back, everyone in a Wes Anderson film talks like Wes Anderson talks in his head, and everyone in a Tarantino film talks like Tarantino does in his head. Mm, yeah. Um, Very specifically as well, those two directors don't seem like they have many people interrupting them in their head. <laughs> the way they talk is very much, okay, when I'm talking, I'm going to get to the end of my sentence. I don't need to rush. Tarantino, obviously, his dialogue is very quick and snappy by nature of how it is. But there doesn't seem to be a feeling of, of they're worried that people are going to interrupt them or cut them off or uh, challenge their flow of thought. He does also take his time, Tarantino. There are times he stretches out scenes of tension so that yes. while the dialogue is doing this, it's actually very slowly stretching. Mm. Kill Bill is the first one where Bill takes control of a scene and says, we're going to move at my pace throughout this scene. 
most Wes Anderson films, in terms of the dialogue, most people speak at the same slightly staccato pace. Mm, yeah, but I think there's a there's a very good reason for doing that and and being consistent with that throughout your films. And I would say both Tarantino and Anderson can do this and can do this extremely well. Uh, there are likely to be other directors that can do it as well, but these guys are fantastic examples of it. And that is being able to catch hold of the audience, set them to the pace that the scene is going, and then bring them along with you. And in Tarantino's case, it doesn't matter how fast he gets. He is extremely good at enabling an audience to keep pace with him. Mm. And in Anderson's case, it doesn't matter how slow and measured he becomes. He is extremely good at getting an audience to be willing to go along at that pace and let the scene unfold as it unfolds. Now, that is a skill. That is something that that is very, very hard to replicate. And there's a lot of directors who basically just go, pacey, 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 and they lose me. I'm, I am not interested. You are moving way too fast. And this is, I'm not talking dialogue here. I'm generally speaking talking um, action. Um, there's, there's more going on than my adrenaline can keep up with. Mm. Um, and it's something that gets me very frustrated when I watch action movies because I love action movies. I think they're absolutely fantastic. And we've, we've talked about the, um, the skill with which certain fight scenes are put together a lot recently. Mm. And that's something that I'm starting to notice. If a fight scene is put together really well and it's edited really well and the, uh, the actors and the stunt performers that are involved in it really know what they're doing they have that same skill that these guys manage to do with with dialogue and and often with music as well that they pick me up and enable me to move at their speed Um, and I think when you are working in film that is a really good quality to be able to get across Um, because it's it's not like a book where the audience can literally move at their own pace it's not like it's not even really the same as theatre because your attention isn't being directed in theatre the same way as it is in film there's tricks and and things that um, directors and performers can do in theatre that will encourage you to look in a certain place but with theatre if you want to look over at the other side of of the stage where nothing is happening you can choose to do that you can't really choose to do that with film so your choices are you know get involved and pay attention and and be moved along by the scene or shut yourself off from it and not he seems to be trapped in a version of the world that ground to a halt somewhere between 1968 and 1973 with the kind of furniture and color combinations that few others would think to try in this day and age but he employs like precision tools and precision is another one of those elements to his filmmaking that is constant, ever-present. There is a symmetry to his frames. People move in straight lines and turn at right angles, almost never diagonally and almost always with a purposeful determination. Everybody, there's no one languorous in, no one's ever sort of just chilling out in a, uh, a Wes Anderson film. You don't get to see them in repose. Well, you do, but everyone's always busy, if that makes sense. They're, they're busy resting. They're busy even when resting. Yeah, no, no, no. But what I mean is there's resting can be an active thing. Like a phone recharging. Mm. Everybody seems to have the same outward disposition, which is flinty-eyed seriousness, making their statements with surety, whilst at the same time leaving their obvious misgivings mostly unspoken. 
Unlike Shyamalan though, where people speak like robots trying to be human, pretty much everything Anderson's avatars say is worth turning over in your mind, even if they're a fool, even a bounder and a cat. Very few are held up as paragons to have their examples entirely wholly followed. I think in this, Agatha is probably the only paragon. The closest, yeah. But, I mean, even she, she's, she's very human. Yeah. Um, I think the, the thing that strikes me about Wes Anderson's characters is the way everything they say is extremely measured and considered. Um, they, no one ever it's says, It's very Ugh. deliberate. Yeah, they're yeah. very deliberate about everything. It's always done with a purpose. Even if as soon as they've done it, like Royal Tenenbaum, they suddenly think, actually, that wasn't such a good idea. Let's backpedal as fast as I can. Mm. It's still very deliberate and, and apparently thought out when they say it. And one thing that did strike me about the, the setting as well, and this is not just for the, the 1930s segment of... Uh, Grand Budapest, but for uh, some of his other movies as well. I read a um, a sci-fi book back when I was a teenager called The Female Man, and it's a, a book that's divided into four sections, and it's four parallel universes. Right. And in one of them, it's technically set in the late 60s, but it's a different late 60s because... World War Two never happened. Basically, uh, Adolf Hitler did come to power, but he never overstepped the line to the point where the rest of the world united against him. Therefore, the Depression in America never really ended. There was no big economic boost that pulled them out of that. There was nothing to motivate massive technological shifts and uh, rapid social change. So everything's kind of mooching along in this sort of semi-ex-communist uh, block Slightly tone, decaying. Slightly decaying, um, colourful to a point, but nothing that's particularly wild. There's also this general feeling of unease because the big bad thing that caused everybody to come together and seek an active peace has never happened. So, and that, it's not exactly the same, but that's kind of the feeling I get about um, a lot of Anderson's worlds. So if, if he is operating in a parallel universe and all his films take place in the same universe, that's the one I kind of imagine. I'd like to think was. that that's actually the case. Mm. And if you think about the, uh, the zigzag... Um, Forces? Yeah. Being effectively the parallel for Nazis in this, you can kind of see it, it never really... They say war is declared at some point. War declared. Um, but it, it doesn't really ever seem to tip over into that massive world-consuming um, conflagration that we had in our universe. The overall impression is that he has prepared wonderful, detailed dioramas for us in the manner of a gifted but serious 11-year-old child disinterested in whether you laugh at how silly things get. To this child, the silliness is part of the events and does not subtract from the drama or tragedy. And because it makes you laugh, you care more. And because it's excellently balanced, the tone rarely feels off. And yet, despite this childlike atmosphere, there's a lot of... Uh, specifically in Grand Budapest, there is a lot of quite racy stuff in there. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, it's it's sexually charged at times behind closed doors. Yeah, it feels very natural though, in the sense that it doesn't have that kind of, ooh, this is very naughty and it shouldn't really be happening. There, there are people who flat out disapprove, mm. but generally speaking, if you look carefully, it's for personal reasons. It's yeah. not because they have some kind of 
uh, deep religious or moral objection. There's no judgment on the part of the filmmaker, and possibly because you're seeing it through the eyes of an old zero. Mm, yeah, possibly so. But I think that it goes for a lot of um, of Anderson's perspectives. To be honest with mm. you, one of the things that the gentleman that, that tweeted you about the comparison with Tarantino um, also conundrum. that's the one. Um, he also referred to Anderson um, as a humanist, mm. which interested me greatly. Absolutely. Um, and actually caused me to go googling uh, Wes Anderson humanist, which turned up a couple of quite interesting essays. Um, mainly because the, the 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 humanist position from a, a sort of a I can't really call it religious because it's by definition kind of a religious, but a lot of my personal values incline that way. The idea that. Um, Having no specific spiritual absolutes in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to you after you die and therefore you should be a good person in case you're going to be punished by a big man with a stick who will meet you on a cloud um, or anything like that does not necessarily mean that you automatically are nihilistic and, um, you know, oh, well, there's, there's no point in doing anything good because I'm never going to be punished for not doing good things. It's not like that. You still have to share this world with a lot of people and things will go better for us all if we are good to each other regardless of what we think is going to happen after this life. Movies of Mikey, um, Mikey Newman said that this film, uh, Budapest, may have created some nihilists because there uh, a lot of it's bent, um, and I'm taking it that everyone listening now has already seen this film, uh, that the take-home could be, well, what's the point of anything in life? We're all going to die, um, which is the, the nihilist national anthem. What's the point of anything? We believe in nothing, Lebowski, nothing. Um, which basically allows nihilists to be shitty to people. Mm, absolutely. Because and, and there's frankly, no repercussions. That's, that, to me, is early stage existential angst. You started reading Nietzsche and you didn't finish. Yeah. <laughs> but I have a completely different take home from it, which I'll detail at the end. Who's this interesting old fellow? I inquired of Monsieur Jean. To my surprise, he was distinctly taken aback. Don't you know? He asked. Don't you recognize him? He did look familiar. That's Mr. Mustafa himself. He arrived early this morning. This name will no doubt be familiar to the more seasoned persons among you. Mr. Zero Mustafa was, at one time, the richest man in Zubrovka, and was still indeed the owner of the Grand Budapest. He often comes and stays a week or more. Three times a year at least, but never in the season. Monsieur Jean signaled to me and I leaned closer. I'll tell you a secret. He takes only a single bed sleeping room without a bath in the rear corner of the top floor. And it's smaller than the service elevator. The framing. The Blu-ray of this, as you folks who've got hold of the Blu-ray will know, says at the very beginning for the first frame, adjust your monitor for 16 to 9. Or 16 by 9. Uh, basically saying, no, 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 it's, it's fine. Just, uh, like... Leave it as it is. Don't try to stretch the image because we're we're about to you know throw some ratios at your ass. Um, first frames you see are in uh, one eighty five to one, uh, and that's uh, the uh, present day and um, nineteen eighty five, which is what something like the Avengers was made in. That's your um, your st- what a current widescreen TV f- is framed like, and that's your comfort zone. Uh, then the 1968 flashback 
is in 235 to 1. So that's your uh, CinemaScope, like your David Lean, your Lawrence of Arabia. That's what... Um, Gone with the Wind. You know, Star Wars. All shot with these, you know, wonderful sort of letterboxes. And that's what we associate with cinema. That's the wide screen of cinema. And that, being specifically back there in the 60s, was when cinema started pushing itself forwards. And then when it cuts to 1932, even if it is an alternate 1932, it goes at 137 to 1, which is the standard TV 4x3. And most of the film plays out in this square in the middle. It's not quite a square. It's um, like it's wider than it is tall. But only just. But only just. Why do you suppose that is? I got a bunch of answers. I'm interested to know what you think. Okay, well, I'm looking at this from a perspective of... What you have to remember when I, I talk about films on these podcasts is I am not a film student. I was not trained as a film student. I am not used to looking at um, shot composition and um, camera framing and that kind of thing. From getting a specific- better. I am getting better through sheer practice. Yeah. But I've not studied uh, the filmic perspective. And more specifically, most of what we've talked about has been less visual in nature. True. If we had been on YouTube from the word go, mm. we'd probably be a lot we more We would have maybe had a more this. of a visual focus. But my, my background is in literary and theatre um, study and, and uh, deconstruction. So for me, it's all about what does this symbolise? What does this mean? And what occurred to me in terms of the, the ratio changes are, think about who is framing that particular part of the story. Um, to work it in reverse, when you're at the um, four to three ratio, yeah. you've got this square. this square, narrow TV setup. Okay, this is zero. And very specifically, this is zero as a boy. Mm-hmm. His frames, his horizons are narrow. Mm-hmm. His world has been shrunk by the fact that he's had to leave his home mm-hmm. because of this war and put himself in an environment where he's very limited as to where he can go. He's very limited as to what he knows, what his skill will get him, who he interacts with, um, who is willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and kind of take him on as a, a full and whole person. Um, by and large, that mostly seems to be limited to uh, Mr. Gustav and um, Agatha. Hmm. So Also, he sleeps in a pokey little space, yeah, his the, tiny, the little tiny little room. room. He operates in and out of that tiny little lift. Absolutely. So for me, that's what that small screen is about. It's that was one of my this is This is Zero's world. It is small screen. Um, there's also the way um, a lot of the shots happen. Um, within this this ratio, there's a lot of side-to-side pans. Now, that's not unusual for a Wes Anderson it's film. It's not. He's done that in 185 to Absolutely. One. But very specifically, they don't happen very much in the other ratios. And when they do, they're much more controlled and deliberate and to show you a panoramic section of what's going on. Mm. In Zero's Though we don't world, get much of the other two. No, absolutely. They, they are in the minority. There are occasional whips, like when Tom Wilkinson, the older version of Jude Law, starts getting very angry at what must be his grandson yeah. with the cap gun. Absolutely. Um, but Zero is in a world where he is trying to take in as much as possible. Yeah. But much of what goes on in front of him, he doesn't understand. And this quick panning backwards and forwards 
made me feel like we we as an audience are being deliberately confused about what's happening mm. in order to put us more in zero shoes that he doesn't know what's going on he you know he's constantly scanning his horizons trying to figure out what's going on around him how he can put this world together and that is best communicated in this small square screen and there's a couple of times when that very deliberately does not happen um, later in the film as he starts to become more mature and, and his own way of behaving towards people alters and grows um, the camera starts moving more deliberately in a, in to kind of what it communicated to me was he is very deliberately trying to take in information rather than kind of looking about side to side trying to grasp what's happening mm-hmm. and the other thing is when there's a still shot on Agatha and it's very still and very slow and it's very much the idea that this is the freeze frame moment that if there is one moment that he is going to brand on his heart for the rest of his life that's the moment and again, in the small square screen, totally focused on her face, that makes more sense than it would in a widescreen shot with lots of things going on in the background. Even if they're out of focus, they're there. But this is totally about her. The shift that you come into that from is the cinemascope uh, ratio. Mm-hmm. The person who is effectively telling the story then is the unnamed writer. The Jim unnamed Wolf. writer. He is specifically referred to, I think, as the as the writer in this segment. He's referred to as the author in Tom Wilkinson's segment. Now, technically speaking, those two things are the same, but there is a there's a slight difference, and I think it's that as a young man, a writer is taking in what goes on around them and putting it in their own words and putting it back out there. Whereas as an author, as a more mature, experienced writer, it becomes more about telling his own story and putting his own um, himself on uh, the stories that he's telling. And he, he talks about the fact that people will come to him and bring him material. So he's not having to go out there and look for material anymore, which as a, as a young writer, he does have to do. And he spends a lot of time traveling. And this this wide ratio to me was about him trying to be as open to the world as he can. And also because it's the shift from Zero's narrow story to the writer's wide perspective, it's him adding a more broad view of the world to Zero's story. And you can see this in a a couple of the moments where you have F. Murray Abraham telling him over the dinner table. Mm -hmm. His expression is not one of... Uh, I'm. I am with you and empathising with you because of your sadness. It's. I'm. I'm puzzling out. I'm detectiving. I'm trying to work out what what all this means. Um, and that kind of that all encompassing. You can see almost all of the screen. To me, is part of that. Then when he's Tom Wilkinson, it's slightly narrower again. And I think that to me communicated the idea that as an older man, his. Not exactly that his horizons have narrowed, but that he has deliberately brought things in a little bit closer, not all the way, not right back down to a square again, but a little bit just to sort of trim down what he has to take in and what he has to absorb. And that's kind of reflected in the fact that you have this little kid that comes running in and shooting at him. And it's like, that's that's separate. That's not part of what I'm doing that's here. That's chaos and it messes up my order. Exactly. Jude Law's ratio embraces everything. Tom Wilkinson's is, I'm doing this right here. And what's on the outside periphery of this needs to go away and leave me alone. 
So it's kind of the, the ratios for me are sort of the ages of man, if you like, mm -hmm. the the young the the young child boy man, if you like, the younger adult the man, and then the the older man. The youth, the man, the old man. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I think it's it's interesting that the person who's reading the book that Tom Wilkinson has written in the first place is a young woman. That takes her out of these parallels altogether. I got two more things that the uh, frame, the significance specifically of the square frame for most of the film, because that's the one you've got to pay the most attention to. The uh, What is around that is the dressing, the icing. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel itself uh, is a converted department store, and it's got this incredible towering quality to it. Now, if you put that into 235 to 1, you get the width, but that undervalues the height. With the square frame, there are repeated, like, sliding up moments where it will give you the full height of the hotel. And there's a lot of uh, moments of, of, like, pushing forwards and pushing up and, like, emphasizing height in a way that's equal to the width. There is something to be said for the fact that this was set at a time before Cinemascope as well. The view on life back then was what's withheld in the photographs that we have. The third aspect for me, and I could be just reading a whole ton into this, was the shape of the box for the Courtesana Chocolat. This whole film, the fact that it keeps presenting you with the Grand Budapest over and over again, and it's pink and it's this sort of beautiful model. The whole thing is a delicately made cake, and it is enclosed within this box for you to unwrap and marvel at. There's that sense that this is something that has been crafted for you and gift-wrapped. And I'll go you one better. Mm -hmm. The film itself, like the cake in the box, contains the tools you need to excavate the deeper meaning from what surrounds you. do some color theory pink white red purple those are the one uh, the colors most often associated with the grand budapest uh, herself when she's in her heyday purple only ever seems to turn up in the uh, colors of the staff of the grand budapest a sense of security a sense of authority and being able to control the chaos that's uh, occurring mm -hmm. um the trusted people wear purple now the uh Society of the Crossed Keys wear all manner of different colours, but the colour for the Grand Budapest of the staff is purple. Mm -hmm. Purple's royal. Yeah. Purple traditionally um, is a, a very difficult colour to get and a very expensive colour to make. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it is a colour of authority and being in charge and dictating how the narrative runs, which mm. of course is what happens with the staff of the Grand Budapest. And the pink and the white and the red, this is all sort of a very grandiose kind of cake 
type thing that you're being presented with. It was it's set at a time when um, uh, pe- people used to actually go to hotels like this and spend six weeks just hanging out just incredibly rich people you know this was a uh, decadence but there, there was also like you know huge sporting events and just massive massive gatherings back in those days which don't happen in the same way now back in those days everything was slower as well i mean you say people going and staying for six weeks longer than that the people would come and stay for an entire season mm. you know it would be uh, he, i think gustave at one point mentions that he's been there for x number of seasons mm. that's if you if you're working in um a public service role and it's a, a seasonal place that's how you think of your time doesn't he say um, he's put in 12 seasons to madame d yeah something like that but yeah. it's it's this idea that your life moves in blocks that people will come and stay here for the winter or the summer and mm. and for for long protracted periods of time but periods of time that you know will end mm. at some point and then will repeat themselves again next year there's a very cyclical feel to it which gives it a very natural feel because there's very much this idea of um you know turn 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 everything has its own time and there's a time to be born and a time to die and that kind of feels a bit like why there's a there's a melancholy about people passing on but not really a a sense of trauma it feels very much like this is you know, kind of as it is, as it was, ever, as it ever shall be about it. And it, it makes everything in this movie feel like it's all in the right place. Mm. Even if it feels terrible, it's in the right place. And the scenes in the 60s, there's a lot of greens and mustards and sort of a, a, a darkish greeny blues. And it's not quite autumnal, but it's getting there. You don't see that pink. You don't see that uh, purple mm, anymore. The summer colours are gone. The uh, the staff are still wearing the purple, but it, there's a, a slight shabbiness to it now. It, it doesn't have that, um, you know, that grandiose feel to it. Also the fact that the walls and the furniture it very specifically clashes with it. Mm. It means that the light reflecting off the walls onto the uniforms mm. gives it a slightly muted feel. There's is a remnant yeah. and uh, I don't know if you noticed but the doors of the Grand Budapest with their horrible GB just um, decal on them make it far more humdrum and boring and, and like there's utilitarian almost. Mm. Yeah. With a, an old uh, Volkswagen um, van parked outside, just to make it unremarkable. Yeah, and that's really emphasised in the scene in the dining room because there's this idea of, and I I vaguely remember this from sort of the early '80s. I was born in the very late '70s, mm. so I I kind of got the back end of this. Yeah. Um, also bearing in mind that I grew up mostly. Yeah, in, depends in where you live. Military houses where the deck. The decor was all like a decade behind anyway, so we still had big brown flowers on the curtains yeah. and hideous orange patterns on the wallpaper. Um, but the the feel in the dining room is very much that they're, you know, they're drinking champagne, they're ordering very expensive wine, the food they're ordering is incredibly luxurious. The table looks really naff. Yeah. The surroundings look standard and ordinary. It's It's two steps away from greasy spoon really it's yeah. it's a very bland environment or to buttons. be experiencing the luxury of, of what they are uh, what they're eating hmm. 
But at the same time, that kind of, again, it feels right because it's it's this idea that it's what you take in that's important. That ultimately, you know, spending lots of money on lavish surroundings when all you're going to do is sit there is not necessarily what you need. It's what's going on within Zero at that point that's important. It's what his memories are, mm. um, you know, what he's taking in and what he's giving out to the writer. Grey, what does that signify? Dullness. Yeah. Um, Who wears grey? The uh, zigzag police. Oh, no, they're not the zigzags at that point, are they? No, it's the, the military police. Yeah. Um, it's dark, but not. they're not evil. No. They're bureaucratic. Yep. They tick boxes, they fill in forms, and generally speaking, they want everything to be ordered. Yeah. But they're the antithesis of fun and uh, th- th- that sense of the special. Yeah. They're much more the sort of the Soviet bloc looking. Absolutely. However, if you know how to play them, mm-hmm. if you know how to reach them and get to the person behind that, yeah. you can still work with them. And black. Absence of light. Everything you throw at them gets absorbed by them and, and crushed by them. And yeah. that's it's the uh, Adams family set of um, Madame D's uh, children yep. and associates. Everyone Madame D in Madame D's family just clad in black. Yeah, absolutely. They look dead. Uh, Jopling, who is their um, their body man. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally at some points and um, as it graduates from the military police being taken over by the zigzag division um, then they all wear black too and yes the uh, zigzag and they actually hang up black flags in the Grand Budapest they um, try to mask the splendor Mm. by with their occupation and they put their you know zigzags everywhere they bring in a black ping pong table at one mm. point, which this, I loved this. This is what made me remark that um, Wes Anderson's use of sound is outstanding. They mm-hmm. brought this table in and technically speaking at that point, it could be a table for anything. Mm-hmm. You can't really see what it is, but there's a little sound effect of a ping pong ball going <laughs> in that very distinctive ping pong ball noise. But notably, uh, that's that blackness that is absent in '68 and then in the present day. They they didn't win. They mm. didn't manage to cover the world in black. Absolutely. They have faded, much like the Grand Budapest as well. Yeah, yeah. But again, that just gives it this feeling of of sort of everything has its time, and then this too shall pass, as they say. Um, Kovacs wears grey as well, doesn't he? Jeff yes. Goldblum. Again, he's with the bureaucracy. He's the solicitor. He's the bureaucrat. Yeah. yeah. Alexander Desplat. Uh, do you remember what else this guy's done? Did he do Stardust? No, that was um, Ilan Ishkari. Oh, sorry. Then no, I can't think <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, you weren't far off with Stardust. He did do a major fantasy uh, film, or a couple of major fantasy films. He did The Golden Compass, which was okay. Um, and uh, he was needed to get out of uh, John Williams' um, light at that point. Uh, but uh, he did the last two Harry Potter films, uh. both Deathly Hallows, and uh, there's some of the absolute most wonderful, like, subtle 
mood building but at the same time heartaching pieces were, were done by him in that and, and it's wonderful like it's of the time and played on the original instruments and it just feels very authentic and, and very transportive. Uh, without this music, uh, it would be diminished in character. And that's the first thing you really hear. Like It starts off with this sort of mournful uh, but at the same time hopeful kind of Tyrolean uh, throat song. <laughs> uh, and that it ends on that as well. It starts and ends on that that song, then uh, the um, Grand Budapest, the the more upbeat version of it, when she's walking through the graveyard, and then um, it ends on that, and then it ends on the uh, Tyrolean song, and just sort of like it it's bookended by this, in the same way that the the screen goes back to uh, two thirty five, and then back to one eighty five, and then back to the girl in the graveyard, and then end. It's this sort of expanding and then contracting circle. Okay, so characters. We've got so many to go through. Is that this. Guess Who board? Oh, no, it's Hotel Keys. It's Hotel Keys. Nice. The front cover of the Blu-ray here, just so we can bear everyone in mind. Let's start with Ray Fiennes, because... This might actually be the performance of his career. Outstripping Voldemort. <sighs> yeah, I think. I, uh, Voldemort's fantastic, but he's not as complex. Mm. There's more delicate handling required for this. This required some kid gloves. Mm. Uh, because you go, you take him in one direction too far, and he becomes dislikable to the point where you just don't want to know him that much. And uh, you know, he says a lot of things that are very snooty to other people, and that's enough to turn a lot of people off. But um, he's a wonderfully complex, multi-layered character who never really gives you everything of himself. That he's very secretive, but at the same time. You feel like you're getting the man that he is. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. And it, it actually... Yeah. Best Speaking... exemplified by the fact that he doesn't describe, discuss his parentage, his origin, mm. anything regarding where he came from. He has effectively made himself this person. Yeah. Speaking as somebody who has worked in customer service pretty much the whole of my adult life, possibly even a shade before that, because I started in my first customer service job when I was 17. I've, I've seen working in customer service referred to as emotional labor. It's, you know, people have a tendency to look at it and go, that's a cushy job. It's not hard physical work. You're not exhausted at the end of the day. But Ultimately, here's the thing. If you have to deal with people from sunup to sundown 
and everybody wants something from you and everybody expects you to smile and be polite all the time, there's a dividing line between who you really are, what you can give them and what you have to keep back in order to remain sane. Mm -hmm. You have to create a version of yourself that is authentic enough that it that you can be true enough to yourself that the job is not going to kill you within a short space of time. You can't be a fake person, not totally fake. If it's if it's not in you to do this job, you can't do it. But at the same time, you cannot give all of yourself um, to every person that you come across because by the end of the first week, you would have given away so much of yourself that there would be very little left. Mm-hmm. Honestly, and you can cut this bit out if you think I'm completely off the mark, I think this is one of the reasons that that I've seen you struggle with customer service jobs. I know you were really, really good at at being a waiter, um, but in other customer service jobs, I've seen you struggle. And I think the reason is because you are such a genuine person. You are so authentic. You put so much of who you really are in what you do, in your art, in your writing, in your, your creative work. That's perfect. That's fantastic. That's exactly the right medium for that. But when you're dealing with people who don't actually want the real you, they want the version of you that can solve their problem or, you know, make them feel good about themselves for a few minutes. You'd, you just, you would have to give away too much. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. And you're right. Gustav has uh, managed to formulate and can't compartmentalize his life to the point where he can get like zero five hours sleep get up be this version of himself the whole day through keep everybody motivated and inspired read them some interesting poetry Mm. and uh, get his rest through his pleasures Mm, absolutely and it comes through in um, two things that struck me particularly one is the the thing that zero says about we ate small meals for stamina mm-hmm. two breakfasts two lunches Just and a late supper and i thought oh my god that's perfect that is exactly right for getting yourself through that kind of day and the other advantage of having regular meals is it gives you a regular break it gives you a chance to detach yourself from what you're having to do sit down calm down you know, get yourself back together again to go out and start fresh. And the other thing is um, there's lots of little sort of snippets of received wisdom that Gustave comes out with throughout the film. And they seem, sometimes they can seem quite pat, depending on the context in which they're given. It's like, well, that's a bit patronising or, um, you know, that sounds like an old wives' tale or whatever. But actually, I've written a few of them down and I was like, I, I could write myself a little notebook of of things to live by frankly with this kind of stuff um you know the the one that really made me laugh though is his thing about little glimmers of civilization in the barbarity that humanity has become and by the end of the sentence he just goes oh Oh, fuck it it. and it's (laughs) it's just the fact that that oh fuck it is not this is not worth trying and i think this is what you were driving at with the idea that that this would make nihilists is you're doing it wrong. If this makes you into a nihilist, then you're doing it wrong because the the fact is that it's, yes, you get to the point of fuck it because you can't 
keep that relentless optimism going all the time but at the same time it's something that it's cyclical again it dies back you get tired you then refresh and you come back to it it is an ongoing thing it's not you can fix the world it's that you have to constantly fix the world in small ways every day to keep it going to keep it going and the the sequence towards the end with the, the all the cross keys mm-hmm. members I loved the fact that every single one of them, when they get the phone call, they go, take, take over. over. And that's the thing. There's always other people. The, it, the, the massive importance of there being a network of people who feel like this and behave like this and think like this, that there is always going to be somebody else who maybe isn't as experienced as you, maybe isn't as, um, as able as you, but determined and willing and learning that you can hand off to to go and do something else because something more urgent has come up. And I love that. Who are you? I'm Zero, sir. The new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you. Never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher? Yes, Monsieur Gustav. Am I to understand you've surreptitiously hired this young man in the position of a lobby boy? He's been engaged for a trial period, pending your approval, of course. Uh, perhaps, yes. Thank you, Mr. Mosher. You're most welcome, Monsieur Gustav. You're now going to be officially interviewed. Should I go and light the candle first, sir? What? No. Experience. Hotel Kinski, kitchen boy, six months. Hotel Berlitz, mop and broom boy, three months. Before that, I was a skillet scrubber. Experience in the... zero. Thank you again, Mr. Gustav. Straighten that cap, Anatole. The pleasure's mine, Hirschneider. Mr. Esbusters. These are not acceptable. I fully agree. Education. I studied reading and spelling. I started my primary school. I almost finished. Education, zero. Now it's exploded. Good morning, Cicero. Call the goddamn plumber. This afternoon, Monsieur Pistel. Will that fail for our league? What on the hell is Not now. Family? Zero. But this doesn't come close to really being able to sum up um, what Ray Fiennes does throughout the movie because he effectively carries the whole thing. He's the one hurtling us along on this intrepid adventure. The fact that it was F. Murray Abraham playing the uh, older version of Zero reminded me of Amadeus. Now, I mentioned Amadeus on the uh, Hamilton show. There's even a point where um, he says, I didn't, in the same way as I did not know you wrote that. That makes him a two-time professional survivor, someone who outlived the actual hero of this story. Now, by that, I don't wish to diminish the importance of the role Zero played in all of this, but I've no doubt he would diminish it. Interestingly, now, uh, F. Murray Abraham is the age that he was made up to look as so <laughs> in that. But uh, he has this wonderful kind of twinkly-eyed... Um, sadness to him uh but um but he's so animated and so verbose and charming that uh you can understand that he may have uh, mikey newman said that his greatest pleasure is reliving this period in his life by telling people about it when they're the right kind of people when they are the sort of people that will allow him to transport them and himself back to this period mm. He's, you know, it's a wonderful performance. And the kiss-off at the end, I feel, I don't buy it personally. I don't think this is a flaw of the film. That uh, him saying that uh, he's not kept this hotel for uh, Gustav, 
but for uh, Agatha, there's such a strong thread between Zero and Gustav of their friendship and their bond and union, whether they share the same uh, profession or not. Effectively, when Gustav is taken away uh, and Zero has to step into his shoes, he becomes a different version of Gustav. Mm. He becomes. I think that's that's the part of flag bearer. It, yeah, that's kind of part of it. I think. I, I, the way I interpreted that was when he says uh, we shared a vocation, wh- what he's effectively saying is I don't need this hotel to remember him yeah. because he has become such a part of me. Yeah. Wherever I go, whatever I do, he's, he's going to be with me. However, that means that the hotel has become important to Zero himself for his own reasons. Um, so I think, yes, all right, there are elements of, um, of Gustav's influence that make him want to keep the hotel, but I, did, I thought it, it wasn't so much as... He's not maintaining it as a mausoleum or anything like that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a living, breathing thing to him, even if it is dying. But I think that the, uh, while he's sh- uh, saving it for, ostensibly by words for Agatha, it's that period in his life um because from the sounds of it she died just two years later or something uh i think he said two years later yeah so what three years tops and uh gustav was taken away from them around uh before that finished and it all centers around this hotel it's Mm. it's it's that it's it's him effectively that that he's keeping it for and that's not selfish that's it's just kind of Singular. The following is one of my absolute favourite moments in the film, not only because it makes an unceasingly relevant point about the plight of refugees and why we must never fail to muster kindness, but also how a truly great friendship will last through hurtful dismissals and move on without blame or reprisal, because, simply put, there is no sense in being friends otherwise. (laughs) <laughs> That's just marvellous, isn't it? I suppose this is to be expected back in... <laughs> where do you come from again? Axelim Al-Jabat. Precisely. I suppose this is to be expected back in Axelim Al-Jabat, where one's prized possessions are a stack of filthy carpets and a starving goat, and one sleeps behind a tent flap and survives on wild dates and scarabs. But it's not how I trained you. What on God's earth possessed you to leave the homeland where you very obviously belong and travel unspeakable distances to become a penniless immigrant in a refined, highly cultivated society that, quite frankly, could have gotten along very well without you? The war. Say again? Well, you see, my father was murdered and the rest of my family were executed by firing squad. Her village was burned to the ground and those who managed to survive were forced to flee. I left because of the war. I see. So you're you're actually really more of a refugee in that sense. Truly. Well, I suppose I better take back everything I just said. What a bloody idiot I am! Pathetic fool! This is disgraceful, and it's beneath the standards of the Grand Budapest. I apologise on behalf of the hotel. It's not your fault, Mr. Gustav. You were just upset. I forgot the. Don't perfume. make excuses for me. I owe you my life. You are my dear friend and protégé, and I'm very proud of you. You must know that. I'm so sorry, Zero. We're brothers. I do love the fact that um, that when uh, 
Jason Schwartzman's talking to Jude Law at the beginning. He he says about how um, Mr. Mustafa always stays in this little tiny room, mm. um, which we know as the audience is the room he lived in when he worked there. Mm. Um, and I think that for me emphasizes the idea that, as you say, this is, he keeps this for him now. Yeah, it's a part of him, and it's it's who he is, and it's what he has left. Saoirse Ronan again, absolutely wonderful, straightforward performance. It's it's almost amusing the f- fact that Anderson was just like, "I'll just be Irish. That's fine." It, it just comes across more naturally if I don't force you to do an accent. And it's such a mystical world that we're looking at that it doesn't really feel that out of place. Mm. The other thing is as well, bear in mind that a European setting, yeah, different accents and people who've travelled there from different parts of the world is is ridiculously common. It's mm. not a question of, you know, everybody around here would have this specific accent. In in certain areas where, especially where there's a high level of tourist trade, you're going to get a lot of people who pass through and who come intending to pass through and then actually stay. Mm. So that, that didn't seem unusual to me at all. Yeah. But she has a, a forthright um, energy throughout the film and you're, you're constantly shown... She's this um, hard-working, brave girl. Uh, it's kind of almost... She's a Studio Ghibli character. Mm-hmm. She's the, uh, the the girl that's learned the value of a hard day's work. Yeah, she's Kiki or um, Sen. Chihiro. Sen was her slave name. Okay. There's something I haven't told you, Agatha. Okay. You stole a painting. It's very valuable. Maybe five million clubbacks, in fact. I don't know if anyone's even noticed it's missing it, but if something should happen to me and Mr. Gustav... You steal art? One picture. Anyway, we need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code, and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find Boy with Apple. Don't take less than half the retail asking price. Also... Zero. I'm a baker. You're a pastry chef. One of the best in the region. I'm not a fence, if that's the term. I don't trade in stolen property. He said it wrong. She willed it to him. Hide this. No. Okay, but take it anyway. I suppose we can talk about Adrian Brody and um, uh, Willem Dafoe at the same time as these just dastardly shits. They, they've got... <laughs> It feels like if Dimitri was... He's trying to zoom in on the Blu-ray cover. I was pinch zooming the Blu-ray cover. I do that sometimes. It feels like if uh, Dimitri was actually just straight up given Boy with Apple, he still wouldn't be happy. He still wouldn't smile. He's just this deeply angry, angry, furious man, which again kind of ties in with my closing statements. And um, Willem Dafoe feels nothing. Mm. He feels nothing, Lebowski, nothing. There's your nihilist. That, yeah. He is a man who believes in nothing. There's no comeuppances. There's no uh, 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 consequences for his horrible actions. He's very direct about it. At, at times he can be sneaky, but he's like a friggin' Terminator and has zero morality. These are ultimately the, these, these wonderfully symbolic figures that um, the, the intrepid humans can go up against. That the, uh, the, the, they all they really care about is just winning. Mm, yeah. Although I think even Dimitri, because this was one of the things that we talked about yesterday, um, the idea that one of the essays I read said that Wes Anderson characters are always incredibly human. None of them are like entirely good or entirely evil. And we were kind of picking out one or two who really are 
almost entirely evil. Um, and I think Dimitri actually, he is still a little bit Shades of Grey because he, he personifies one of my favourite statements of Gustav's, um, which is the idea that uh, Rude rudeness people. is an expression of fear. Yeah. People fear that they won't get, get what, what they, they want. want. Um, and and the idea that you can overcome that, you can you can encourage people to behave in a better way by helping them to be less afraid that they won't get what they want. I love that. I, that epitomizes what it sounds really really corny because ultimately customer service is a job and it's a crappy job at the best of times sometimes. Um, but that is what. It is for me, it's about making people less afraid that their day is going to be horrendous because this thing that they have to do is going to go wrong. Um, and ultimately, what Dimitri wants is is shallow and mean and cruel and self-interested. But that's what he's doing. He fears he won't get what he wants, and so he's horrible to people. Yeah. And yet he's not taught anything at the end. He just doesn't no. win. He learns nothing. He doesn't win. Um, but he he doesn't really change or end up achieving anything. Nobody's really looking out for Dimitri's best interests. I think that's the only uh, there like the the brothers in um, Darjeeling are fairly shitty people at times, uh, but none of them are straight up evil. I think the only genuinely evil character in any Wes Anderson film was um, uh, Jopling. Now that I think about it. Mm. Like there's never been a, like the idea of stalking. Oh, and Bunsen Bean. I was thinking about them, <laughs> but there. Um, Albert Finney plays Bean in a sort of human type way, mm. so it, he seems less like this sneering villain and more just like this farmer who just you know, not going to let some bloody fox push me around. Um, God, that's a lovely film. Tilda Swinton, transformative performance. Oh. Lyra saw her finally talking in uh, interviews and was like, oh my God, that was her. And I was like, well, yeah, it was a role where she didn't have to be bald. She was happy. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those hair and teeth, hair and teeth things. I could frankly have, have taken her as a major character the whole way through. I'm not leaving. I beg your pardon? I'm not leaving. Why not? I'm frightened. Of what? I fear this may be the last time we ever see each other. Why on earth would that be the case? Well, I can't put it into words, but I feel it. Well, for goodness sake, th there's no reason for you to leave us if you'd rather... Come with me. To fucking Lutz? Please. Give me your hand. You've nothing to fear. You're always anxious before you travel. I admit you appear to be suffering a more acute attack on this occasion, but truly and honestly... Oh, dear God, what have you done to your fingernails? I beg your pardon? This diabolical varnish, the colour is completely wrong. Oh, really? Don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. I, I am physically repulsed. Perhaps this will soothe you. What? While questing what? once in... No, just listen to the words. Please, Hush. While questing once in noble wood of grey medieval pine, I came upon a tomb, rain-slicked, rubbed cool, ethereal, its inscription long vanished, yet still within its melancholy fissures. On a side note, I particularly adore Gustav's predilection for poetry. It's always employed to calm himself and others. It's never used to make him sound intellectual. It's always to put others at ease. There's something that occurs repeatedly in Wes Anderson films where um, helpers get mentioned by name once and are right there for you. 
it's in Rushmore. It, like at the end, a character who has never been named at any point in Rushmore, uh, Max is like, well, hang on a second, Reuben, and he calls out to the disc jockey who holds up a record because he knew what Max wanted, and he's got these big long pigtails, and it's just like he's right there, and that happens so freak. I feel like Wes Anderson, when he was a kid, lived in this Tenenbaum's house with Mr. Little Jeans out of um, uh, Rushmore, who was called Pagoda then, um, and like loads of different people poking their heads out of windows all the time. It's such a warm, odd way of seeing the world. It's so comforting watching those films. It's, that is, I think there's a, a way of being with people where you, and again, Monsieur Gustave says uh, at one point about how your, your role as a lobby boy, he's trying to explain it to Zero, is to anticipate the needs mm. of your customers. And you should be able to anticipate the needs before the needs are needed. Yes. And that, it, it's a And very, you also need to be invisible, always not there, but always there. Ready to be there when you're required. When you're needed. That and is a disappear, very melt particular away. way of relating to people. Yeah. It's almost... So Reuben say, didn't exist until Max called for him. Well, indeed. I mean, I, I, hmm. I want to say maternal, but I don't want to stereotype the maternal yeah. role. But it is something... There's, it's an unconditional way of being with people and being there for people. Yeah. And it only really works if it... If it, not, it doesn't have to go both ways exactly equally because obviously some people's temperaments are much more suited to being like that than others. Hmm. But if you are... If you're like that with everybody and nobody is like that with you, you get very tired and worn out very quickly. Yeah. A side note, I just want to talk about the locations because this is the kind of film that it's really difficult to... You can't just tell people what it's about. That's why at the beginning I didn't say it's effectively an art heist movie because that diminishes what it actually is. When you start watching it, as you folks will all know now, it's got that sense of exotic, like, you're, this is not the kind of film you normally get to watch type scenario mm. going on. It takes place in a country, Zabruska, which may or may not exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist in the film by the end, to say the, the um, semi-independent state of uh, Zabrovka, Zabrovka. Um, was dissolved. It's even got its own national anthem about the mountains. Mm, yeah. But um, it's it, also not very big. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's you know got these lovely uh, streets. It's like Vienna uh, or um, various other Austrian cities and towns. It's it's, it's got a very sort of mm, uh, Eastern European, but slightly towards the middle of Europe. Yeah, Valais Lacus. But um, it's also very specifically tech-wise. It is just on the cusp of that point where the old world finally ceded to the new. Where in, in the 60s, when we see it later, that's actually happening more um, in a sort of a dull way. Um, not necessarily improving it, certainly not giving it more character. It's picturesque and postcardy, and I'm specifically thinking of the, the streets when um, uh, Agatha's uh, bicycling along with her um, cakes hanging from a stick. 
uh, it's it's got this uh, this wonderful charm to it, and you know when um, uh, Jeff Goldblum as uh, Mr. Kovacs is uh, you know wandering around the museum, even though it's terrifying, it's like you want to keep stopping and checking everything because it looks fascinating, um, and it, it it feels very real, very vivid, and very far away. Like you'd have to really travel to get to somewhere like this, and. Possibly you may never get to somewhere like this. Mm. Although I think I, I did feel the same, but not necessarily because of distance, but more because the, of like public transport doesn't go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when we were looking up, uh, could we go to Greenland? Have you got several thousand pounds? Mm, yeah. Greenland's far, far away, folks. Absolutely. And it's not, again, it's not really as far in distance as you might think. It's just that you'd have to charter a plane yeah. because passenger planes just do not go. Yeah. Oh, you want to go to Tahiti? Have you got £10,000? <clears throat> but yeah, the, the locations are, are enchanting, and uh, the, uh, even, the, even the prison that they go to, the internment camp with it, you know, it, it's uh, the, the, the scruffy den of thieves that it is, um, has a sense of place to it. Uh, specifically, again, with the height, when they actually start crawling out of the uh, the side and uh, through the window, and and you get that sense that they are just like, towering. It's like Azkaban; mm. they're towering above this chasm. Do you know what it really reminded me of? What? Papers, please. Yeah, or Escape from Cold. It's the game. Mm. <laughs> Something like that. But I think a lot of that sense of place in that particular section comes with Gustave because he gets there. And um, he brings everything he is yeah. with him, and I love the fact that he's he's you know he's importing these gorgeous cakes from Mendel's that he hands out to everybody. He doesn't get any himself at that point. Did you notice? No, I didn't. He doesn't know. take any. Everybody else takes a piece, and he doesn't get any. But and it's like this is how he makes friends, and he's um, he takes up the uh, going around the cells with the meals to bring to everybody because that he's maintaining who he is by doing the things he would be doing back home and um, when they read out his letter at the the staff meeting at the hotel it cuts to um, Ray Fiennes reading the letter out but if you notice he's standing at a podium in the prison with all the prisoners behind him just as if he was standing at the podium in the hotel yeah. with all the staff in front of him listening to him he's got that and same it's just, just that feeling that wherever he goes he will always be him and that seems to give everything around him this sense of place the phrase that springs to mind about him is manners cost nothing and that's not technically true manners take time to work at. They take time to learn and to know exactly how to treat each situation. Because if you're a bit too toffee-nosed with someone who really isn't going to appreciate it, then they start getting abusive. But um, there is a certain level of consideration that takes effort but reaps rewards. Mm. But it has to come from a place of authenticity. Yeah. If you're faking it, if you're putting it on, eventually people will know, the facade will crack, somebody will catch you on a bad day, and you won't be able to maintain it. I have always operated on a certain level of civility and courtesy, even when I am tested to my limits. Uh, the other day I bought some uh, DVDs from a, a second-hand shop, uh, sorry, a charity shop, um, took them home, opened them up, and there was these great big, like, 
puddles of milky residue all over them. Like there's someone who just spunked all over them. Bought them back to the Ew. shop. Yeah, um, bought them back to the uh, shop and said, like, is it possible to get a, uh, like, just exchange on this. I will buy some trousers or something instead. And they went, oh, yeah, that should be okay. Oh, did you bring the sticker that was supposed to be on them? I was like, no. Uh, I got the receipt here. Well, that could be for anything. And I just thought, your amazing mind. That basically I would take this spunk cover DVD set and I would bring it to a charity shop with a de- with a receipt of something of rough of equivalent value and try to hoodwink it back onto their shelves to save four bucks on a pair of trousers and I get that they have um, standards but basically she sort of said it to me in a kind of we can't just like I don't have the authority to just like give you 50p um, in that kind of way I was like okay I guess I'll go home and find the sticker then it's probably in the bin I hope it's not covered in tea and baked beans uh, but I wasn't rude to her and I didn't say things in a, in a passive aggressive voice I was like okay and then I went and I found it and I walked my ass back and uh, got the exchange but I have seen people fly off the handle at far less than that fear that's why fear because they're afraid of something. Who they are is being fundamentally undermined by the fact that this person will not do what they want them to do. I never, ever, ever get personal and snitty with the person who's standing in my way, even if it's obvious that they are choosing not to help. Even if it's obvious that they've got a shitty attitude. That doesn't mean that, I, uh, that I'm a pushover. They're, basically, if it's too bad, they will, I will just go, right, we have to go and just up and leave and lift and separate and that's the best reaction to someone who is I mean that's exactly exactly what Gustav does when uh, um, Adrian Brody gets all up in his grill calls him a fruit punches him he just leaves Um, because after a certain point it's not worth rescuing Mm, but if everybody in the world was like that I think we'd all be able to take a lot more for ourselves to enjoy and be less scared that other people wouldn't help us out. Because if everyone is going to work hard to help us out, we don't have to be afraid anymore. It's what makes behaviour like that special, that it takes effort and that it's hard and that it's... Uh, a discipline and that it has to come from within and it has to be genuine and you have to be able to do it fearlessly knowing that it might not be uh, received well you also have to be able to not take the other person's response personally you have to be able to recognise that if they don't react well and if they continue to fly off the handle at you and continue to be rude and aggressive, um, that ultimately that is not about you. That is about them. Good morning, Pinky. Mendel's again. Precisely. Who's got the throat slitter? Out of this world. Mendel's is the best. Well, back to work. Mr. Gustav? Yes? Me and the boys talked it over. We think you're a real straight fellow. Well, I've never been accused of that before, but I appreciate the sentiment. You're one of us now. 
What a lovely thing to say. Thank you, dear Pinky. Thank you, Gunter. Thank you, Wolf. Anything else? Tell him, Ludwig. Checkpoint 19 ain't no two-bit Huska. You got broad gauge iron bars on every door, vent, and window. You got 72 guards on the floor and 16 more in the towers. You got a 325-foot drop into a moat full of crocodiles. But like the best of them, it's got a soft spot, which in this case happens to take the form of a storm-drained sewer system dating from the time of the original rock fortification way back in the Middle Ages. Now, nobody's saying it's a stroll down a tree-lined promenade with the fine lady in the white poodle, but it's got what you'd call vulnerability. And that's our bread and butter. Take a look. We could go on and on and on about every single little visual detail of a Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't think I could really tie it to anything. I could say, it's brilliant when Willem Dafoe throws Jeff Goldblum's cat out the window. And you could go, yeah, that's great. But there's nothing else to really add. It's done with such flair, but it's all... It's all in the character nuance rather than like, you know, us deconstructing and extrapolating layer upon layer of, of what this means. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's, it's the war between people who treat other people as they wish to be treated and people who don't. People who treat other people like shit because they feel that they can. And this is a, it's a wonderful gift to the people who actually get to watch it. But I've got a feeling that we're going to be back with Wes Anderson at some point soon. Oh, in terms of character flaws, I was thinking about this, so that, that Zero might be considered a bit of a uh, um, paragon, as in he doesn't have any flaws. He does have one flaw. He's jealous. Yeah, he gets very easily jealous during situations that don't call for it. And that's, again, that's a fear response. I suppose his punishment, it's almost like a Greek tragedy, is that he gets the thing that he desperately doesn't want other people to have instead of him taken away. Not by anybody else. But not by anybody else, just by the cruel hand of fate. Huh. And, of course, Gustav is a litany of flaws. Um, And he eventually... It's his... essential decency and protective nature um, and being a father figure that is his comeuppance Hmm. so he died doing what he lived doing and (sighs) this film makes me so sad but in a good way in a good way but I was wrecked last night after watching it. I was wrecked today again, watching it again. Um, This one's been hard, folks. It induces a powerful sense of uh, isolation in me. Again, in a good way, but um, it's uh, not a place that I like to have heightened and sharpened for too long at once because it can start to really slow you down probably the best way of putting it it did that to zero that might be another one of the fundamental differences between our characters hmm does it speed you up 
it doesn't speed me up exactly, but I don't, I don't have a resistance to being alone that's in the same uh, category as you do, mm. I suppose. I don't like being lonely, but being on my own feels like a very natural state to me. Mm. But to tie it up, the uh, antithesis to the um, nihilism take home is rather than there's no point to life at all, of course there's a point to life. Um, my point has always been to, uh, to make life better for other people. I was thinking to myself, um, which would I rather have if I was going to get feedback on something? Uh, praise me for my writing skills. Tell me how fucking fantastic I am for you know, being a great editor and putting stuff together. And you know, just generally award me five stars for attainment. Or tell me this helped me for this reason. Tell me this really got to me. Tell me... I can now see something a lot clearer. I suppose you could say that that's technically the same thing. That's praising my abilities to help you with that. But for me, it's more just the understanding that I've made a difference. So that would put you in between. Okay, uh, two categories of personality, similar to um, the Myers-Briggs introvert-extrovert theory. Sociotropic, which is people who are motivated by other people, and autonomous, which is people who are motivated by um, their own achievement. Mm. Um, and it's, it's not an exact divide between the two, um, and it sounds as though you fall pretty squarely in the middle, which we've always said you are in the middle of, you've got a foot in extrovert and introvert, haven't you? Mm. So maybe it's attainment that drives you, but it's attainment that's very dependent on other people. I'm more interested in hearing that I'm making a difference than that I'm really, really good at something. Mm. Even if it's just, cheers for recommending this film to me, it was a really, really good film. All that, you know, on one hand, it... Made, you know, well done for your taste in films, good recommend. But far more importantly, if that film showed you something, yeah, but you're definitely that means more to me, yeah. And you're definitely not full on surround me with and connect me with people on a direct level. I don't think level. so. I don't think I can. I'm very isolated in here. Effectively, I'm in a little box where I'm posting out stuff what's in my brain and occasionally people slide things under my door like tweets and ratings for my book and uh, I get to go oh okay and that's the fuel that I put on my little furnace mm. but if you opened the door and everybody came streaming in that would be scary I would squeeze out the door and leave them inside <laughs> <laughs> The Virtue of Melancholy 
This has been something that's been weighing on my mind since I first set it to the task of understanding what makes Anderson films so special. Yes, they are quirky and funny and filled to the brim with flawed characters, but every single one of them has the same overriding emotional touchstone, which is melancholy. Our culture is fueled by two key emotions, joy and anger, with fear being a key element of marketing. These are almost always taken to extremes, with every daily situation that arises causing outrage to someone. Everything must either be awesome or terrible, perfect or hideously short of the mark, or unjust, either powerfully progressive or else regressive. And the fear is that we will fail to hit the mark ourselves and fail at life. Melancholy is a blend of sharp sadness and quiet joy. Not loud, boisterous, exuberant, go-tell-it-on-the-mountain joy, but an awareness that joy itself is fleeting and a cherishing of the memory of the moment that provided us with that joy itself. Always balanced by the sadness that it cannot last. The impermanence of life and how fleeting our periods of knowing who we are because we know what we value. All of Wes Anderson's films feel like this. All of them possess a dignity and an understanding that what they are will never be hugely popular to everyone. These are stories about lonely people, but always in the context that they have found, sometimes only briefly, a family, a home, friendship, a place to be. Unlike the Disney films that we love, that end happily ever after, these moments are conveyed with full understanding of their fragile nature that must cede to time. Grand Budapest ramps this up to absolutely heartbreaking levels at the end, balanced by some of the silliest, most whimsical of Anderson's quirks throughout, the ski sequence in particular. What it made me feel most of all, specifically in outlining the decline of the hotel itself at the beginning and end, is that 36 years have passed since the events of the story. Zero is a survivor of the past, staying in the same place of safety and comfort, thinking back on the greatest brief moment of his life. He is lonely and there is a dignity in that, in understanding about oneself that fitting in may not be for you. I don't see this as nostalgic, despite the fact that it appears to be the dictionary definition. It transcends time itself. This goes deep into the corners of human interest, the things that only a few loved at the time and most have forgotten now. Books that only had tiny printings and were most beloved in libraries where they reached unlikely people. A song only played to a small gathering once the animation of Oliver Postgate. All of these were briefly special to someone, like an exquisitely prepared courtesan au chocolat. Next week, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. School's out.